0: If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Genesis 22. Genesis 22, if you're using the Red Pew Bible that's provided there, it'll be on page 19. And by the way, I want to tell you, if you are here this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are many wonderful free Bible apps. I'd be happy to show you how to load onto your tablet or your phone. But if you're old school like I am and you kind of like that ink on paper... You're welcome to take one of those pew Bibles with you today. Uh, One thing we ask, look inside the front cover, be sure there's no dedication on that particular copy of the Bible, and then it's yours to take. So, Genesis uh, 22, page 19 of your new red Bible, let's read together uh, uh, this portion of God's word. After these things, God tested Abraham. you've not been with us, you might not know what things this is coming after. There are a couple of comments to be made here. The first is this. The things that are most notable would be this, the departure of Ishmael. And that's not insignificant for the text we are about to read. Abraham's elder son, Ishmael, has been sent away. He has only the one son left, Isaac. That matters to the story in front of us. After These things turns out to be quite a while after, probably 10 to 12 years later. Anyway, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. In college, I sorted packages for United Parcels Service. And every once in a while, we'd get a label like this To Mr. and Mrs. Smith, 123 Main Street, Springfield. As if there was only one Springfield in the United States. There are no less than 34 Springfields in the U.S. Why do I share that with you? Because it turns out that in the ancient world, place names were also used for more than one place. So there is some confusion as to exactly where Moriah is located. And there are some who would point to 2 Corinthians 7 and say, look, Solomon built his temple on a mountain called Moriah. Clearly, the sacrifices of that temple were on the same place as this sacrifice. The problem with that is that that mountain is only one day's journey from Abraham's home in Beersheba, And we're going to find out this journey took him three days. We're not sure where Moriah was located. Verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. What is only implicit in our English is explicit in the original languages. And that is that all the verbs in that sentence are plural. Become again to you is also plural. And that's worth noting. Verse 6, and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. We are unfamiliar with the concept of burnt offerings. But the bodies of any living being are mostly water. A burnt offering to be consumed by fire requires a great deal of wood. I share that with you to say this this is not a child. Isaac is probably 15, 18, maybe even his early 20s. He's a strapping young man. If he is able to carry enough wood to consume a burnt offering, this is a, a, a physically strong young man, also going to turn out to be important for the rest of this account. And he took and Abraham took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And this is why I pointed out Isaac's age. Abraham is at least 115 years old. I've heard many of you grandmothers tell me the accounts of trying to chase your grandchildren around. Can you imagine being 115 and trying to run down a 15-year-old boy? Ain't going to happen. While it is not the main point of the story, nevertheless, what do we see here? Isaac also obeyed God. Isaac has been raised in a household of faith. Isaac has been raised to know what worship is all about. And he submits to the will of God, as does his father. Then Abraham reached out his hand Behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, "'By myself I have sworn,' declares the Lord." and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Let's pray and ask God's guidance and understanding and applying this text. Lord, we do come before you. We, t- we bring our prayers to you that you would reveal yourself to us in this familiar text, in this familiar account of Abraham offering up his son Isaac, Lord, let us not presume that we know already what it says, but let us hear from you the message you have for us, your people, on this, your day. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. A three-day journey. You want to talk about agony? What is the very worst thing you have ever faced or could imagine facing? Now imagine that you knew it was coming in advance, three days in advance, three days to think about it, to, uh, to, to contemplate it, to agonize over it, three days of doubt, three days of gut-wrenching, stomach-churning anguish, three days of what I imagine would be some violent mood swings from anger to denial to acceptance and perhaps back again through all of them. Three days. Lord, you can imagine Abraham saying, Lord, if I have to do this, please don't drag it out. Please don't let this heartache linger. I'm begging you, can we just get this over? But the journey dragged on day after agonizing day. And I think, among other things, one of the reasons was so that Abraham could contemplate what was happening. So that Abraham could think about what was in front of him. For we are quick to jump to the end of this account and not consider what was happening during those three days. For this to be meaningful to us, I think we need to wrestle with what Abraham wrestled with. So on the morning of the first day, you can see Abraham's resolution, verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning. He got to work. The early start is an indicator of initial intent to comply. Kind of that, okay, if I've got to do it, let's just get it over with mindset. And yet even in his obedience, there is a note of his dread and reluctance. Many have observed the strange sequence of Abraham's preparations. Notice there, he saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. You don't start the car, then get the wife and kids together, and then pack for vacation. The sequence isn't logical. The sequence doesn't really make sense. And many commentators have noted, I think correctly, that it really reflects Abraham's reluctance. He is putting off till last that which is hardest to do. Logically, he should have first gotten the wood all cut and stacked and ready to go. Then put the saddle on his donkey. Then said to Isaac, Hey son, we're ready to head out. Come on, let's go. But that's not the sequence. The idea of putting together a bundle of wood on which he would have to burn his own son was difficult. And he put it off till last. So yes, yes, He is desiring to obey. But let's not imagine that this was something he was going to do readily or easily or with excitement and interest. His reluctance is revealed in the way that he prepares. And so as he is directing the men to load the wood, you can surely imagine him praying inside, Lord, are you sure? Have I understood you rightly? Is this really what you want me to do? And as they sallied forth, surely the debate in Abraham's heart and mind must have raged on. Lord, I have readily accepted that sacrifice is the heart of worship. I know we owe. Abraham understood what we often do not. Sacrifice is worship. Worship is sacrifice. Sacrifice has always been at the heart of Abraham's worship. Look at Isaac's comments in verse 7. Father, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the sacrifice? Isaac didn't say, hey, Dad, what's all this stuff for anyway? He knew what it was for. He had done this enough times that he recognized. He didn't say, Dad, hey, we've never taken this stuff to church before. Why are we taking it this time? Isaac readily recognizes what's happening because he's worshipped alongside of his father for his life. He knows that worship means sacrifice and sacrifice means worship. Do we know that? Do you, dear friend, know that worship is sacrifice? Perhaps you're thinking that I've drawn to sweeping a conclusion from so little data. You might be thinking to yourself, come on, Pastor, it's just one example of one man. That does not allow, that does not justify your broad sweeping conclusion that worship is sacrifice and sacrifice is worship. Okay? So let's broaden our horizons. What was the first act of worship recorded in the scriptures? Remember back in Genesis 4? Abel worshiped God. Abel's worship was acceptable to God. What did Abel do in his worship? He gave a sacrifice from among his herds. And as Moses is writing Genesis, the people are on their way out of Egypt. And why did they leave Egypt? Moses goes to Pharaoh multiple times and says, let my people go. Why? So that they may worship. And 12 of those times, he explicitly says, Let my people go so that they may sacrifice. The people who were reading this were steeped in the understanding that worship was sacrifice and sacrifice was worship. And of course, in the tent of meeting in the wilderness, in the tabernacle, what was the main cultic rite that would have been practiced there? Sacrifice. And when Solomon built the temple on uh, the mountain also called Moriah, some 1,100 years after Abraham, in 2 Chronicles Chronicles 7.12, God calls the temple a house of sacrifice. And in the courtyard of that temple, now this is an astounding thing, in the courtyard of that temple was the Bronze Sea. It held 12,000 gallons of water. There were 10 wheeled carts, each holding 230 gallons of water. Why all that water in the temple court? Because it was a bloody mess. Because the non-stop sacrifices left blood and entrails that had to be washed away. The temple was a house of sacrifice. God said. Sacrifice is at the heart of worship. Sacrifice is essential to worship. The Bible opens up with its very first reference to worship being a reference to sacrifice and it continues that theme and oh by the way, how does it conclude? Revelation 21.7 notes this, and I saw no temple in the city. Why not? For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. A clear reference to sacrifice. While sacrifice as a verb will cease, the sacrifice as a noun will be glorified forever. Sacrifice is at the heart of worship. So you've come to worship. What sacrifice have you brought? What sacrifice do you offer? And I'm not talking about a few dollars in the plate nor the sacrifice of your time or of your sleep. Abraham got up earlier than you did, I assure you. And that had nothing to do with his sacrifice. So what sacrifice do you bring? What precious life do you offer to God today? A sheep, a goat, your child, yourself? Don't answer that question just yet. The very question is probably upsetting to some of us because you've come to worship not to give but to get. Your expectation of worship is that it's a place where you receive, you come to worship out of a sense of need, yes, but you don't see it as a need to pay, you see it as a need to get. We go to worship to be re-empowered, to be filled with God's presence. We treat worship sometimes as a a food pod in a video game. If your character doesn't pick up enough of them along the way, its little life bar goes down to zero and weep, 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 the character dies on the screen. That's how we treat worship sometimes. As though it's the place that we have to come in order to get what we need. We sing songs about how desperately we need God's presence, and we do But that's not principally what worship should be about. True worship is giving to God, paying off the debt we owe him. So again, I ask, what do you bring? Where is your sacrifice? How are you worshiping this morning? And again, I would suggest that we not answer that just yet. Abraham's preparation belies his hesitancy, but deep inside, Abraham proceeds upon the understanding that sacrifice is worship. In other words, Abraham understood not only that the, what the Bible says about worship being sacrifice, but what humanity has demonstrated across culture, continents, and chronology. Sacrifice is the essence of worship. We testify to this, not just the Bible, for all human history, it has been understood and universally acknowledged that if man wishes to ascend the heights of Olympus, he must do so with a sacrifice to please the gods. What did the ancient Chaldeans do upon their ziggurats? They offered sacrifices. How did the Incans hope to relate to their gods? They made sacrifices in their temples. Sacrifice is not only attested to in the scriptures, it's attested to in human history. Whether the true worship of Abel, offering up animals from his flocks, or the false worship of King Manasseh, burning his son before Moloch, sacrifice has been the heart and soul of human worship. Both proper worship and corrupt worship. Humanity has always understood that it owes God. No matter how perverse man's religion has been, at its core is the common tenet that we owe God and there is a debt we have to pay. Now, pastor, seriously, you've not really considered all human religions. Come on, pastor, there are very uh, 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 peaceful, nonviolent religions. Pastor, you haven't thought about Buddhism, for example. Well, I'm glad you asked. For what does... Buddhism teach that life is a struggle, life is suffering and that the only way to achieve peace is to give up that's another way of saying sacrifice to give up the struggle and to simply accept the suffering of life. Nirvana is achieved when you sacrifice the life you would have liked to have had and accept the life that comes to you. This is why we apply Buddhist terminology. When someone is very relaxed in the face of a difficulty, we say, oh, they're so zen about it. I hope we don't say that. Our culture says it. Okay? They're so zen about it. They've just accepted it. They've sacrificed the life they would have liked to have lived. They've given up the desire for ease and comfort. They've made a sacrifice. Granted, a religion like Buddhism doesn't require the violent sacrifice that other religions do, but nevertheless, at its core, is this idea that we must give up something. Islam asks for the sacrifice of alms Sacrifice of time for prayer, the sacrifice of the Hajj to Mecca. Every religion is focused on sacrifice. Now, someone might say, hey, pastor, okay, I've got it. I'm willing to accept that organized religion is rooted in sacrifice. But what about the non-religious? What about those who don't practice any religion at all? What about the materialist, the naturalist? And again, I would say to you, thanks for bringing it up. Well, let's take a moment to look at that briefly. If materialism is true, the consistent materialist, if we say that there is nothing but these atoms and molecules that random forces have arranged into these things we call bodies, they have no meaning, no purpose beyond this life, there is nothing else, this life and this life alone is what matters, then the natural consequence of that is that you ought to live this life to the fullest enjoyment you can possibly muster. Why would a naturalist, a materialist, care about the future? You can't take it with you anyway. You're not going to come back. And so what if the earth burns up and becomes uninhabitable Future generations aren't going to miss it because they're not ever going to exist to know that they could have missed it. And yet nobody thinks that way. The naturalist, the materialist, the atheistic materialist still says you must give up your wasteful lifestyle. You must sacrifice the pleasure that you would want for yourself for the greater good of humanity. Everyone admits that sacrifice is necessary. We know we owe. And on the opening morning of this long journey, Abraham sets out knowing he owes God. But I don't imagine that alone did away with all his internal struggles and debates. Yahweh, I have served you for nearly 40 years now. You've never asked me anything like this. Sacrifice, yes, but of lambs and sheep and rams and bulls and goats and birds, but a human, my child? Why now? Why Isaac? You can hear Abraham thinking to himself, you know, the gods back home, the gods back in Mesopotamia, this is the sort of thing they asked for. They expected that we would sacrifice our children. Yahweh, I was drawn to you because you promised me children. And now you're taking them away. Throughout all the iterations of human attempts to get to God, to reach the divine, to ascend to its better self, humanity has not only belied its understanding of the necessity of sacrifice, but it has Reflected its understanding of the necessity that life be sacrificed. We know that we have to die. You know, it's interesting. There is no biological reason for death. I mean, go back to your high school biology class, 101. Cells take in nutrients. They use those nutrients to build new parts of the cells. The DNA and the RNA make proteins. Those proteins make everything else needed in the cell. Yes, I used to teach high school biology. Once the cell has got all the new things it makes, boom, cytosis occurs, two cells, voila. So long as a living organism were to suffer no traumatic harm and have a constant supply of nutrients, hypothetically, it ought to be able to live forever. By the way, you don't have to take my word for it. Some of the smartest, most ingenious people on the planet are pumping billions and billions of dollars into the pursuit of human immortality. The founders of Google and Amazon and Tesla and all the rest of them are funding this because they know it's at least hypothetically possible. It's scientifically possible there should be no death. And yet, everyone and everything dies. We got the message. We understand the necessity of death. And so in our sacrifices, we reflect that. And we kill things. We understand the need for death. The Bible affirms that. In Genesis Genesis 2, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Romans 3, for the wages of sin is death. Romans 5, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. The Bible is plain, the consequence of sin is death. And human religiosity reveals that we got the message. We make sacrifices and life is the principal sacrifice. Again, even the atheistic materialist expects the truly good person to give up, that is to sacrifice, aspects of their lives. You don't get to live the life you would have liked to have lived. You don't get to live the life of uh, extravagant expense. Rather, to be a good person, you must make the sacrifice of that life and live another Abraham understood the centerpiece of true worship was sacrifice, and that the sacrifice of life is the final, in the final analysis, the required thing. And so he reasons that Isaac, being a sinner, owes God his life. Then the sacrifice of Isaac is now consistent with the truth that Abraham understands. It's doctrinally logical, it may be hard to accept. But it makes sense to him. Not for the sake of guilt, because that isn't particularly helpful, but for the sake of truly understanding what Abraham is doing here, ask yourself this simple question Could you sacrifice your child? You know, the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, I have kept all the law of God since my youth. What must I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? In other words, he came to Jesus and said, I've been a really good, very religious person, and I want to take it to the next level. How do I get even more spiritual? How do I get to know God better? And Jesus looked at him and said, not in so many words. Jesus looked at him and said, listen, you think making those sacrifices of your own are going to get it done. Make this sacrifice. Give up everything you have, Sell it, give it to the poor, and come follow me. He couldn't do it. I think he might have had an easier time if Jesus had said, go sell your child. He was so attached to his things. What is it you could not sacrifice right now? What if God asked for your car? What if he asked for your things? What if he asked for your spouse? What if he asked for your child? You know, it's interesting. Jesus himself says, he who does not hate his own father and mother, brother and sister, his wife, his children, even his own life cannot be my disciple. The reason that this very fallen man, Abraham, this re- the reason this sinful man is considered the father of the faithful is because in the final analysis, when push came to shove, at the end of his life, what did he learn from that long life of walking with God? He learned to trust God. And if God said, sacrifice Isaac, he said, okay. Some of you might reply, you know, I don't really need to give up everything. You know, I'm not the rich young ruler. God's never asked me to give up everything. In fact, just the opposite. Jesus promised me an abundant life. You know, he promised me the cattle on a thousand hills. If God asked me to sacrifice my car or my house... God would, in effect, be making himself out to be a liar. He'd be taking away the very abundant life he promised me. I don't need to sacrifice those things. On the contrary, pastor, I need to hold on to them because I have a promise from God to have an abundant life. Why, then, does Abraham obey? Did he not have any promises from God? Why does he continue walking? Why does he bind Isaac and lift the knife to slay him? Abraham had a promise from God that his offspring would be numbered through Isaac. By our logic, Abraham could have said, okay, God, I hear you, but no, that's not how it's going to happen. You've made a promise that Isaac will be the progenitor of my offspring. I can't sacrifice But you see, Abraham's theology was richer and deeper and purer than ours. You see, the the 21st century church, that's how we vision our theology. We have to help God fulfill his promises to us. But Abraham has grown out of that. We would say, well, I can't give all that generously to the poor. I can't give all that generously to the church because God has promised me an abundant life. We would say things like, you know, God promised that the two shall become one. And pastor, you've not met my husband. There's no becoming one with him. But the guy I'm having the affair with, we're one. We're truly one. And that's what God promised. I can't give that up for God will not be able to keep his promise to me then. Abraham could have thought that way. But what have we learned from the life of Abraham? He's been trying to help God all along. He leaves Ur of the Chaldeans, being told that he would have, be the father of many nations, he would have children, he doesn't have any children, so he takes Lot with him, even though God said to leave all your family behind, he takes Lot to be his adopted son since Lot was an orphan. God eventually drives Lot out of Abraham's life. Then Abraham says, okay, Eliezer of Damascus, my servant, he will be the heir of my household. He will take my name, and through him will the promises be fulfilled. And God said, no, it is not through Eliezer of Damascus. You will have a son from your own body. And he says, okay, I've got it out. I know how to help God now. I'll take Hagar, the servant girl, I'll make her a surrogate mother. I'll have a child with her, and that will be how God fulfills his promises. You can almost hear God's frustration welling up. No! I don't need your help fulfilling the promises I've made. Stop trying to help me, Abraham, and just do what I tell you. And Abraham has learned that lesson. So, what's happening as he walks to the mountain? What's going through his head on that third day? Well, he's come to this conclusion I'm going to obey, and God's going to figure it out. I'm going to do what I'm told, and God's going to take care of the consequences. I'm going to sacrifice Isaac, and somehow God is going to raise up for me offspring through Isaac. He's done helping God. And he now expects God to do miraculous things. He looks at the birth of Isaac and goes, There's no way 90 year old Sarah should have had a baby. I don't need to help God out. God is going to figure out a workaround. God is going to figure out how I can be both obedient and sacrifice Isaac and still fulfill his promise. You can let go of the affair because God will raise up for you the fulfillment of the promise in another way. You can let go of your clinging to possessions because the abundant life comes in a way you did not imagine. You and I can leave behind the sins of this world because God is going to fulfill his promises in striking ways. So, what does Abraham conclude? Well, the scriptures tell us, actually, what he concluded. The book of Hebrews tells us. He figured this Abraham's theology led to this conclusion I'm supposed to kill Isaac, Isaac's supposed to be the progenitor of my offspring. The only thing I can figure out is God's going to raise Isaac from the dead. That's the only way I can make sense of this. Now, did Abraham have any reason to think resurrection was possible? He really didn't. Except that he knew God kept his promises. And so he goes to the mountain expecting a miracle. I actually think that by day three of this journey... Abraham may actually be getting excited about what's going to happen. I'm going to go obey God. I'm going to do what I'm told, and then I'm going to get to see God do something amazing. He's going to raise Isaac from the dead. I'm going to slit his throat, and God's going to heal it again. I'm going to take his life from him, and God's going to restore it. I'm going to spill out his blood and God's going to put it back in. God is about to do something unbelievable. And I get to be a front row witness to it. We don't approach the hard obediences of our life that way, do we? We don't go into the difficult things in life with that kind of attitude. but the author of Hebrews tells us that's what Abraham was thinking. God is going to raise Isaac from the dead. So imagine for a moment that he gets up on the top of the mountain. He lifts the knife. He gets ready to slaughter Isaac. And God says, wait, don't do it. Look over there, there's a ram in the thicket. almost perceive the possibility the possibility that there might actually be a tinge of disappointment. That Abraham is going, well, that's not that spectacular. I... God, I thought you were going to do this miracle of resurrection. And that's it? You want me to slay the ram? That's not really a sacrifice, Lord. I... That ram didn't cost me anything. It doesn't come from my herd. I haven't been taking care of it for years. It's not not the ram I need to be the father of the next generation of my flock. That ram costs me nothing. It's not a real sacrifice, Lord. I am going to show you how much I love you. I'm going to give you the sacrifice of Isaac. And you see how quickly things would spin? All of a sudden, what was once asked for now becomes an abomination before God. God has said, no, I don't want you to slay Isaac. And Abraham says, oh, no, 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 I want to do something even more wonderful than what you have. You see what's going on? God has provided a substitute. Substitute one that would die in the place of Isaac. Can you imagine Abraham going, no, I got a better plan. But isn't that what we do all the time? Don't we regularly tell God we have a better plan? Don't need Jesus, the substitute. I'm going to please you all on my own. God, you don't understand what I've been doing for you. I gave up drinking. I've given up pornography. I've given up lusting after my neighbor's wife. I've given up my desire for the new car. I give to the poor. I serve down at the soup kitchen. Lord, I'm doing all these wonderful things for you. That's the sacrifice I'm making. That's more dramatic. That's cost me something. I don't need the substitute. I don't need Jesus. All of a sudden, that's the bigger offense. That we imagine that we can please God on our own. There are two notable problems with that, not the least of which is this. It offends God because he's got another plan. He has said, that's what I want. And you've said, no, I'm going to give you this. God's plan, God's provision disappoints us sometimes. It isn't the religion that we think we ought to offer. We want to come to God with some other sacrifice in our worship rather than the sacrifice of Christ. We want to go to him with some other offering rather than the offering of Jesus. You know, Jesus himself spoke of Abraham he said, uh, 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 Jesus was in John 8, he said, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. It's hard to imagine that Jesus is talking any, about anything other than this right here. For what do we have here? The substitution of one sacrifice for the one who deserves to die. A free gift, a sacrifice that cost you nothing, that is provided by God. Abraham wasn't disappointed. He rejoiced. He was glad. A sacrifice that cost me nothing but satisfies God? It's mind-boggling. I can't really figure out how it all works. But yes, I'll take it. Amen, God. Thank you, Lord. Jesus says Abraham was glad. If this wasn't the day of Jesus that Abraham saw, I don't know what was. For as much as we said back in Genesis 3.15 that that was the first announcement of the good news, the I will raise up the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head, if that's the first pronouncement of the gospel, then this is the first glimpse of the cross. That's the statement that God's going to do something to fix our broken condition. This is a beginning of peeling back what that something looks like. You don't have to die, someone else can die in your place. The substitution of Jesus for us is the promise of the gospel. So let's go back to that question we asked and did not answer earlier in the sermon. What sacrifice do you bring in worship? Do you come with your money and hope that God is appeased and pleased? Do you make a sacrifice of your pleasure so you can offer him your purity? Both are in themselves good things. And both might be truly valuable and meaningful to you like your own personal Isaac but to offer those in worship is to ignore the ram God provided. And just as Abraham would have defiled his worship by going through with the sacrifice of Isaac, so too we defile worship if in it we offer any sacrifice other than Jesus Christ. Do you wish to draw near to God? Do you... uh, uh, a desire to know him better than you do so through the sacrifice of Jesus do you want to commune with your creator you can pay off your debt to him and be at peace with him through the sacrifice of Christ sacrifice is worship worship is sacrifice and there is only one sacrifice that is adequate and sufficient and pure and holy and acceptable to God not your own personal Isaac Not the son whom you love, but the son whom he loved. Jesus is the sacrifice through which we worship. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for being that sacrifice. Thank you for being the one who took our place and paid the debt we owed Let us never come before your Father, our Father, with anything else in our hands. Let us never offer up any other sacrifice than your broken body and spilled blood. Let us hope in that and in that alone. Let us proclaim that and that alone. Let us share with this world that there is a sacrifice that is offered on their behalf so they can be right with you. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.